The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking this morning at Colossians 1, 24 through 29, elements of a fruitful ministry. I love history. I do. I love especially colorful figures from history. And I think there are a few as colorful from the old American West as the snake oil salesman. I'm talking about individuals that would go from town to town in interestingly colored carts and wagons and set up shop in each place. And they would have fascinating, bizarre remedies to cure what ails you, whatever that might be. And if you bought their little vials of um, substances and oils and other remedies, and if you took them, they might do you some good. You might feel better. You might feel worse. You might feel the same. But they certainly made a good living, and off they went to the next town, and you'd probably never see them again. At least not that one. Another one might come in six months. Every week, thereabouts, I get things in the mail that teach me how to grow this church. From church growth experts to tell me what I need to do to make this church a success. Success in a box. All you have to do is send your 139.95 or whatever it is and it comes right up out of the box and it will make this local church a success. Don't you want to be, I want to be a success. Would you like to be a success? I'd like this church to be a success. You may wonder what the two of those have to do with each other, the snake oil salesman and these experts and their various remedies to cure what ails you. I think you can see the connection. I would rather hear from someone who can tell me the truth. How can we grow this church to be everything that God wants it to be? And in context of Colossians chapter 1, I want to understand... What kind of ministry will glorify Christ as He has been revealed in this chapter? Think about that. What what kind of Christ have we seen? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. By His word, the heavens and the earth came to be and have their being to this very moment. This is the glory of Christ. And we learned last week that He is the one who shed His blood on the cross... It is by that blood shed on the cross that every man, woman, and child who will ever stand before God, blameless and unafraid, holy in His presence, and who will be escorted into the very presence of Almighty God to live forever and ever, it is by the blood shed by Jesus on the cross that all of that will happen. It is by His blood that the world, the universe, will be reconciled to God. Now, what kind of ministry is worthy of that? That's the question in front of us today. And the Apostle Paul, as he does so frequently, presents himself and his own ministry as an example for us to follow. He describes to the Colossians the nature of his ministry. He describes what it's like and what he does. And he does this not that he would boast in himself, but in effect to say, follow me as I follow Christ. This is the kind of ministry that's going to build the church. This is it. 
And so this morning we're going to look at pattern, a pattern for fruitful ministry. I'm not saying that these eight elements that I find here in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, exhaust the depths of everything that could be said about elements of a fruitful ministry. And I'm not even saying that they exhaust Colossians 1, 24 through 29. But I think these eight things are helpful for me as a pastor and all of us as Christians who have a ministry, and that should be all of us, that we would look at these things and say, oh God, work this in me. I was very convicted by this passage of Scripture, specifically in the area of of tireless labor for Christ. That's very convicting for me. And I want you to be convicted as well. I want God to work in your heart. I want God to work in your heart and to use Paul's example. And so we look at the pattern of ministry here in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Eight elements. Stewardship, joy, and suffering. Full proclamation of the Word of God, but a focus on Christ in the midst of that full proclamation. And a shepherding, nurturing heart, uh, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. And a clear goal, a focus on maturity in Christ, Christ Christ-likeness, to know what you're about. We're looking to see Christ formed in individuals. And then that aspect of laboring in the Lord by His power. These eight elements we're going to look at today. Now, I want to just take a moment, as they say, a personal privilege, because Andy Wynn's not here, and I just want to talk about him. Okay, is that all right? He usually sits right over there. You notice he's not here. He's on vacation. And I know it's being taped, so you can listen to it later. But when I come to Colossians 1.29, for the rest of my life, I'm going to remember Andy Wynn. We needed a youth pastor, and we were interviewing, and Andy had been doing fruitful ministry here. He was almost done at Southeastern. And so um, he was presented as a candidate, and I thought he was a good candidate. I wanted to ask him and talk to him. So we sat down, the two of us talked together. And I asked him, I said, Andy, what in your mind are the keys or elements of of a fruitful, successful youth ministry? Without blinking an eye, without hesitating, he said this, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order that we might present everyone perfect in Christ. He got the job. That was it. First of all, he had it memorized. That was really good for me, all right? It was, he chose the right verse, and he has been doing that kind of ministry in our midst ever since for seven-plus years. And I think it's just a sweet thing. And so if you see him, encourage him, because that's the kind of man that he's been in our midst. But no, this isn't just Andy Wynn's verse. This is my verse, too, and any verse of anyone who wants to be faithful in ministry. But I just thought that would be encouraging to you. I'll never forget it. This, this is an element not just of uh, fruitful or successful youth ministry, but of any ministry. So as you hear these eight elements, don't just think apostle and don't just think pastor or youth pastor. Think yourself, because I believe that God has entrusted to each one of us a ministry for which we are going to be held accountable. And these same elements will be helpful for all of us. Let's look at the first one, and that is a perspective of stewardship. Stewardship perspective. In verse 23, Paul speaks of the gospel. He said, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. A servant. And then in verse 25, he says, Of the church I became a a servant or a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul considered his ministry a stewardship to himself. It was something entrusted by Christ to him. Now, a steward is a servant who manages someone else's property, someone else's possessions, and seeks to manage them in a way that would honor the master and be pleasing to the master. That's a good steward, anyway. 
And Paul sought to be that kind of a servant or a steward. A, a, a minister or a servant is like a table waiter. That's the word used here. And the idea there of being a table waiter is that you are not the chef. You are not the chef. You're not the cook. Decidedly not. And you have no business getting involved in what's on the plate. It is your job successfully to take it from the master chef and present it unadulterated at the table. And that's the way Paul saw himself when it came to the ministry of the word. And I see myself that way too. It's not for me to mess with the doctrines or to rearrange them or to change the word of God, but rather to present the word of God in its fullness. So Paul saw himself as a servant and as a steward. He believed that this ministry had been entrusted to him by Christ. Now, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship that's been entrusted to me. He says again in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and 2, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those who have been entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Brothers and sisters, have you been given a trust? Has a ministry been entrusted to you? I would argue from Scripture that every Christian must have a ministry. Every Christian must put forth labor and effort by the power of the Spirit to build the church of Jesus Christ. What is your ministry? And if nothing is popping in your mind, may the Lord awaken within you a yearning for a, an identifiable pattern of ministry in this local church so that Christ might be glorified. But if you have a ministry, you are a steward of that ministry. It's been entrusted to you. And someday, you are going to have to give Christ an account of what you did with it. And so the first idea here of a fruitful or a successful ministry is to consider that it's been entrusted to you by Jesus Christ himself. For it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we have to give Him an account, and then from Him we will receive our rewards. An attitude or a mentality of stewardship. Secondly, we see the issue of sustaining joy. In verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I rejoice in it. This is a commitment of the Apostle Paul. Paul had a commitment to joy in the ministry. What good is a ministry done by a miserable person? Think about that. Just picture it in your mind. I'm a teacher. Uh, what are you a teacher? I'm a teacher of the Word of God. You know, like Eeyore. Have you ever met Eeyore kind of people? I'm not against Eeyore. I mean, but I'm just saying there must be a joy, a visible joy in ministry. And Paul says, I rejoice. There's a, there's a commitment to joy. And even it's a realistic joy. He didn't have his eyes shut. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful but always rejoicing. So we're sorrowful because we are facing, and more and more, the more you get into ministry, facing the wreck that sin leaves in people's lives. And it's really sad. I mean, it's really sad. And so you sorrow, you weep. Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And yet, he died for the joy set before him. And so we've got to be buoyed up by joy in ministry all the time. Just about all of Philippians is given to addressing this issue of joy, the attitude of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
Joy is the only proper response, I believe, to the greatness of the hope that Christ has won for us. Our future inheritance, brothers and sisters, in the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, how rich we are in Christ. How rich is our future. And how great should be our joy. You ought to feed on that joy every single day. Now, I believe that joy is an indicator of spiritual health. And that a lack of joy is an indicator of spiritual sickness or a problem. It's similar to a canary in a coal mine. You know, back in the older days, before we had this kind of technology that we have today, miners would take a canary and put it in a, in a little cage and bring it down with them into the coal mines. And the reason they would do this is not because they were lonely and wanted a pet. The reason they did this is because the canaries were very sensitive to the presence of methane gas or carbon monoxide. Especially carbon monoxide is odorless and colorless. And so if you were a coal miner, you were down there and you would just learn to kind of talk to your bird and listen to it singing and you'd just you'd watch it as you're... And if the bird was doing well, then you were fine. But if the bird started to look woozy and started to sway on its perch, you need to get out of there. Probably you ought to take the bird with you. I mean, it'd be some just out of love for God's creation, but you need to get out. That canary in the coal mine was a sensitive early warning system for difficulties. Invisible difficulties, and so also is joy in the Christian life. It's sensitive. It's delicate, isn't it? Are you characterized by consistent Christian joy? And I don't think anybody honestly is going to say that. You catch me at every moment, 168 hours a week, well, minus the sleep time. But anyway, I would, I guess, joyful in sleeping. But if that's your only time in, in, in joy, you've got problems, all right? Do people characterize you as a basically joyful person? Connected to the joy of the gospel or not. I think, I think joy is a great early warning sign. You look at what Paul wrote in Galatians as they were drinking in bad doctrine and, and legalism and all that. And he asked them in Galatians 4, what has happened to all your joy? That's a big problem. And when you don't have joy in the Christian life, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, uh, speaking of financial giving, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't just love a giver friends. He loves a cheerful giver. He does not accept gifts given with irritability and given out of compulsion with a grumpy attitude. Well, that's not just financial giving. It's any giving you do to the Lord. Any aspect of your ministry, you need to do it cheerfully. You need to do it with joy. Any spiritual gift ministry, teaching with joy, giving with joy, praying with joy, serving with joy, hospitality also with joy. It says in 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality without grumbling. Many of you are going to open your homes tonight to home fellowships. I just want to say thank you for your sacrifice. It's going to be hard work. You're going to work this afternoon to get your... Maybe your house is always beautiful and clean. Maybe I'm showing something of myself I don't need to show right now. But we do have to labor to get our house looking that good. You know what I'm saying? But that's hard work. It says without grumbling. Instead, we do it joyfully. Your ministry has to be done with joy. Now, Satan, I believe, attacks joy all the time. Constantly sending joy thieves after you. Joy thieves all the time. Pride is a joy thief, isn't it? I don't deserve what I'm getting. Don't they notice and don't they see all the good things I'm doing pretty soon? Your joy is gone. Or I don't deserve the trial I'm going through, the suffering I'm going through in my life. I don't deserve it. Pride is a joy thief. Selfishness is a joy thief. So also is a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience, terrible joy thief. It's hard to be joyful if you've got a guilty conscience. Unbelief 
is a joy thief. Not trusting the promises of God. False doctrine and legalism are joy thieves. Just understanding grace wrongly. The greatest joy thief of all is sin. Wouldn't you say? I mean, probably, if you're not joyful in Christ, it's probably because you've sinned and you need to confess something to God. Joy. All of the ministry we do, we need to do with joy. And it's a commitment that we make, isn't it? We're going to make an, a, a commitment. We're going to rejoice in the Lord. We're going to be like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. We're going to sing and praise and worship. Even Paul and Silas, beaten publicly without a trial, put in, in stocks in the inner cell, dark, nasty place, and they fill it with joyful singing to God. And you know what God did. He sent that earthquake and he shook the place. And the result was the Philippian jailer and his family came to faith in Christ in the middle of the night. Does that happen if they're not joyful in their trial? I tell you it doesn't. I'm saying God doesn't send that earthquake and I'm saying that Philippian jailer doesn't get saved that night if they hadn't responded joyfully in the midst of their trial. He pulls them out trembling and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He wants to know. Now I tell you, so also, joy in evangelism, joy in ministry, it's so in attractive, it's so engaging. Thirdly, embracing suffering. Now you might think the two of them, how do they go together? How do you go joy, suffering, one after the other? But Paul openly embraced. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now this is a fascinating verse. It's fascinating. There's a lot of things in this verse. First of all, I think that many translations have a different approach. It's more like Paul's rejoicing in his own sufferings for the Colossians and he fills up in his body what is lacking. But I actually don't think that's what the Greek says. I think the NIV has it right in this case. Because it, Paul there says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He's never been to the Colossi. He doesn't know them personally. He hasn't suffered anything personally for them. Now, he's lived a lifestyle of suffering and we'll get to that in a moment, but not for them. So I think what's going on here is he's saying, I rejoice in the principle of suffering, in what happened, what Epaphras perhaps or other servants have done to plant the church there in your community. I rejoice in it. I rejoice in what was suffering for you, the principle of suffering. And that's a bigger issue, isn't it? What does it take to plant a church in a city like Colossae? What does it take to bring a single person to Christ? What does it take for us to finish the ministry God has entrusted to us? What does it take for us here at First Baptist Durham to reach out to this triangle community with the gospel? What does it take for those of you that are preparing for cross-cultural, unreached people group ministries? What is it going to take for you to bring your people group to Christ? I tell you, it's suffering. And without it, it will not happen. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. There is no progress made in the kingdom of heaven without sacrifice, without suffering. And so what Paul is saying here is, I rejoice in the suffering that happened to bring you about. I rejoice in that. I think it's one of the most glorious things to consider. That we are part of a royal family of brothers and sisters in the Lord who did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation. Chapter 14. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. But they were willing in the Roman era to have their blood poured out in the sands of the Colosseum to see uh, the Roman Empire basically be converted. 
These are faceless, nameless people to us, but God knows each one of them. And Paul would say, I rejoice in what was suffered to do that. Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. I rejoice in that. I embrace it as a principle. It's the way Jesus saved our souls. Why? I shouldn't do that. Tell you what. Can I take a minute and clip it back on? There we go. I rejoice in the principle of suffering. Jesus saved us by suffering. And he set not just our atonement out, but the pattern by which the atonement would spread to the ends of the earth. Polycarp burned at the stake, said, 86 years I've served him, and he's never done me wrong. How can I betray my king who saved me? Glorious statements, one after the other. Adoniram Judson buries two wives and a daughter in an effort to take the gospel to Burma. Even today, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering and dying. You wouldn't believe all of the incredible things that are happening in Iran. You hear about Iran politically. You hear about Iran in terms of the, of the threat they are to world peace, in terms of, of atomic weapons, nuclear weapons. But below all of this, the church is exploding. People are coming to faith in Christ. It's an awesome thing, but they're doing so sometimes at the price of their own lives. And Paul would say, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. We don't know those stories. Someday we'll learn them, though. I'll tell you what. When we are in heaven, and it's testimony time, all right, and we are freed from time constraints, and we are freed from pride and selfishness, Notice that Paul is not rejoicing in his own suffering for the Colossian church. I tell you, he's not. He's rejoicing in what Epaphras suffered, freed from selfishness. It doesn't matter who did the suffering. That person is my brother, my sister in Christ. I rejoice in it. We will, we will delight in those stories. We'll delight in hearing about a brother or sister in Christ during the, the time of the bubonic plague, the Black Death, who took his or her life into their hands to, to bring nursing and the gospel into a specific area willing to die, and maybe did die of the Black Plague, but they led some people to Christ before it happened. We'll rejoice in those stories and delight in them. We're part of that, that royal heritage. But Paul goes deeper here. He actually gives us a theology of suffering. He says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. This is very deep. It's a bit mysterious. What does Paul mean when he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ? What could possibly be lacking in the suffering of Christ? Well, there's some things we can just reject. Some ideas we can just get rid of here. All right? It says already, look back a few verses, verse 19 and 20. It says of Christ, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Is there anything lacking in that, brothers and sisters? Anything at all? When Jesus says in John 19, after receiving the drink and knowing that all was fulfilled, when He said, it is finished, and then He pillowed His head down on His chest and gave up His spirit, He died. Was there anything lacking in the afflictions of Christ at that moment? I tell you, no. It's a perfect work of atonement. But let's take what John Murray said in his great book, the book title, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, to understand it here. There was suffering for Christ to get redemption accomplished, but then there's suffering for us to get it applied. You see? Jesus did his work. He ascended to heaven. He sends forth the Spirit and he says, I will give you power and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth and you will suffer to do it. You need to take up your cross to do it. And I fill up, Paul says, in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. They're still Christ's afflictions. Now, how are they Christ's afflictions? 
Well, you remember Saul of Tarsus breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He got letters from the synagogue leaders and the high, high priests and the officials so that he could go to the synagogues in Damascus and arrest any there who belonged to Christ. And on the way, he gets knocked to the ground by the blinding, resurrected Christ, the light, the glory of Christ. He gets knocked to the ground. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When you drag off men and women and throw them in prison, I feel it. You're hurting me. When your hand hurts, it sends the signals to the brain. When your foot hurts, the brain knows about it immediately. And so also all of the sufferings of Christians, the martyrs, the witnesses, all of the suffering are Christ's afflictions. And Paul says, I'm filling them up in my body. Is there a call on you in that regard? Are you called to suffer at all to advance the gospel of Jesus? Are you suffering to advance the gospel of Christ? Fourth, full proclamation. Verse 25. Paul says, I have become its servant, servant of the gospel, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. The essence, the center, practically speaking, of Paul's ministry was the proclamation of the Word of God. The proclamation of the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. That was the center of what he did. Preaching was the center of God's plan for the salvation of the world. Now, the snake oil salesmen in the 21st century are telling us that preaching's day is over. It's finished. We're in a different era now of communication, and we need to compete with the computer graphics that are done with movies and with all of the stuff that's done for ad campaigns and all that and the stuff on the internet and all of that way that we're communicating now, we need to come up into that preaching is done. The simple communication of the Word of God like this is finished. It will never be finished. It will never be finished because God has ordained the simplicity of the preaching of the gospel as the way that He will work. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be more sensational, more spectacular, we can't entertain better, we can't send people off with a bigger bang and a bigger... We can do all that, but that's not how the church will be built. Not that way. And so, we proclaim. We, I, I'm to present the Word of God in its fullness, Paul says. That was his calling. And so, he says to the elders in, in the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. He was there for three years ministering to those people every day. And he said, I didn't shrink back from proclaiming anything that would be helpful to you. Taught you publicly from house to house. Verse 27 of Acts 20, he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. All that was in God's mind to communicate to you. I preached that. I taught that to you. As a matter of fact, Paul yearned to hit the finish line, having accomplished all of it. Whatever God had entrusted to him. Again, Acts 20, he says, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So he knew what he was about, and it was about the clear proclamation, the teaching of the word of God. That's what it was about. Now, the church is the steward of this mystery. It's a steward of this ministry, the church is. And therefore, it's not just the pastor, but there are teachers who teach the word of God in its fullness. And they need to be faithful to it. This church, First Baptist Church, must be fully committed to this kind of an expositional ministry if we're going to continue to be healthy. We need to hear the Word of God in its fullness. Amen? 
Even if the Lord were to take me tomorrow, get somebody else who'll do it. You've got to have this kind of clear teaching of the Word of God in its fullness. Not shrinking back from anything in the Word, but just saying what it says if you want to grow. And so also, uh, the teachers uh, in, in Bible for Life and Acts and Home Fellowship teach the Word of God in its fullness. It's essential to the Great Commission. You know that, don't you? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and what? Teaching them to obey, what's the next word? Everything I have taught you. That is the Word of God in its fullness. Tell it, what do I need to do, Lord? All of it. I don't just want part of it. Tell me all of my responsibilities. I want to be faithful. The whole counsel of God. Too often we're in pragmatism these days. The snake oil salesmen are telling you, this is what works. We've got the little thing. And they're measuring it by human techniques. No. This is what will build the church from inside out. It will grow numerically, and it must but it will also grow into the image of Christ this way. And yet, for all of that, there is a focus to the preaching. A focus is Christ. Yes, he preached the whole counsel of God. Yes, it was the Word of God in its fullness. But you know who is the Word of God in its fullness? It's Christ. And so in the end, we need to teach the 66 books of the Bible. Yes, we need stuff on Leviticus. We need to, but we need to find Christ in Leviticus. Amen? We need to know where He is in all of those offerings and all of those washings and all that cleanness and uncleanness. We need to know where Christ is in all of it. We proclaim Christ. Look what it says in verses 26, 27 and on. It says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now disclosed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him. So yes, there's a breadth to a healthy preaching, teaching ministry in a local church. But there is a laser-like focus on Christ in all of it. We proclaim Him. And why? Because it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And how mysterious is that, friends? This infinite God, this image of the invisible God, the one who, by whose word the cosmos have their being, existed and have their being. This one can live within our own hearts. He can dwell within us by faith. We proclaim Him, the unveiling of a great mystery that Gentiles, we Gentiles, can actually be shares together with the Jews in one great new people called Christian. One new man focused on Christ, trusting in Christ, forgiven. We are new creations, aren't we? In a new creation existence with Christ in our hearts. Oh, is that an awesome thing. That by Christ, the triune God would actually live within a human heart, would live within us. We are the temple of the living God. And it speaks there of the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you realize how wealthy you are? You may be a poor student. You may be struggling to make ends meet. (laughs) You may be having trouble paying your bills. There may be some hidden aspects to your financial struggles that nobody knows about. God knows. But if you're a Christian, you are infinitely wealthy the immense riches that are yours. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know what that means? That you will see glory. You'll see it with your own eyes. 
You will see God in the face and not be consumed. You will see the new heaven and the new earth. You will see it with your own eyes. You will walk the perfect streets and you will see things you can't even describe. I couldn't describe them. You will see glory. But you'll more than that, you will be glory. And if you're not, you can't be there. (laughs) You will be glorious. God will make you glory. Christ in you is the hope of all of that. The hope of glory. And that's what we proclaim. We proclaim Him. Now, what does that mean, we proclaim Him? Well, you know that Spurgeon story. He was teaching young pastors about preaching. And I I keep this in front of me frequently. But uh, he told the story of an old pastor who listened to a young man preaching one of his first few sermons. And he said, how did you like it? He said, I didn't like it at all. Well, why don't you tell the truth, you know? But you need people that will tell you the truth. He said, well, why didn't you like it? He said, there wasn't any Christ in it. He said, but I didn't find Christ in the passage. And he said, don't you know, my boy, that in every town and village and hamlet in England, there's a road that leads to London. (laughs) Find it. In every text, there's a road that leads to Christ. Find it. He said, but what if Christ isn't even mentioned in the text? What if he's not there? He said, then go over a hedge or ditch, but find him. Get to Christ. Now, friends, there'd be no point in me preaching a sermon like this, talking about ministry, about Jesus in in general, and forget that there may be some that are here today brought by the providence of God who are not Christians yet. You're listening to me now in a Christless state. You're not ready for judgment day. The wrath of God is on you now, and if you were to die, you'd know what that meant immediately. You're not ready to give an account for every careless word spoken. You're not ready for, for death. But you can be. I mean, it's this simple. You don't have to do any great good works or whatever. You just have to hear what I'm saying now and believe that God sent His Son and His Son shed His blood on the cross and by that, the, the wrath of God can be fully atoned for, fully appeased for anyone who simply trusts in Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you believe it? And that God didn't leave Him dead on the cross but He raised Him from the dead on the third day? And if you believe all of that, you will be saved? Trust in Him now. I believe every week that God brings someone into this place who is not saved. Trust in Him. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone. And this brings us to a shepherding heart. Admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom. God has done a wonderful work in this church in the last two years in raising up the beginnings of a really wonderful counseling ministry. My yearning and my prayer, I've prayed a lot about this in the last two weeks, is that God would, would lead us to continue and to, to keep growing. And that God would raise up more laborers for this abundant harvest field. Do you know how messed up non-Christians' lives are with sin? And how much they need the truth of the Word of God? And even Christians struggle with being messed up too because of sin. And we need to hear the Word of God too, don't we? And God has raised up a wonderful counseling ministry. We had Randy Patton this summer. He's the president of NANC. National Association of Neuthetic Counseling. The Neuthetic, that it comes from a Greek word, Neutheteo, it's right in our text here today. We proclaim him admonishing. Now, it was, it was Jay Adams in Competent to Counsel. He taught us what, it, what this Neuthetic Counseling is. Basically what it is, is taking the Word of God and going to an individual who's struggling with sin and warning and admonishing and working with them so that they give up the sin, repent, and come to a healthy relationship with Christ. And it's done gently, it's done with humility, it's done taking the log out of your eye first, it's done with a recognition that the roles could be reversed in two or three months, but it needs to be done. 
And so Paul says this is a shepherding ministry. We care about what's going on. We admonish with all wisdom. Not in a coarse, crude, prideful, harsh way. How do you take something out of somebody's eye? <laughs> do you want somebody to take something out of your eye? Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho. You know, there's a twitch mechanism. You've got to come gently and you need to have built some trust. You know, when I touch my little baby's face, she doesn't flinch. She just knows. But if somebody she didn't know, come, she's, she's going to, you know, pull back. And so there's a way to do it. But this is a shepherding ministry. We proclaim him admonishing and also teaching everyone with all wisdom. The teaching aspect of the ministry, every precept, every little block of truth. You've heard a lot of them already today, not just in my sermon, but in Bible for Life. And every true statement, every true doctrine is like a brick of truth that God uses to erect a whole lavish city of truth inside your heart. It takes time. But this teaching ministry builds up a worldview of truth out of which you will live your life. And that's a shepherding ministry that must continue. We proclaim Him admonishing dealing with people in their sin truthfully and teaching everyone with all wisdom just as they need. And the clear goal of all of this is in verse 28. So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Perfect in Christ. Now, I don't believe in perfectionism. Perfectionism is basically the idea that you can be perfect, sinless and perfect in this age, in this present age. I don't think it's true. (laughs) I know it's not true. Romans chapter 7 speaks of a deep and bitter struggle with sin. And we will not be perfect in this world. But we can walk in the light as He is in the light. And at the same time, the blood of Christ cleanses us in an ongoing way from all sin. But the goal here is we're not satisfied with where we're at. How many of you are satisfied? Don't raise your hands, but are you satisfied with where you're at in your Christian growth? Are you th- you've arrived. You're done. Well, this isn't a good church for you because we're all about the journey here, the infinite journey, the one you haven't reached yet, okay? And what that means is that you will not arrive at perfect Christ-likeness in this life. And so the goal of ministry, the goal of this kind of a ministry is to present everyone perfect in Christ. The idea is that if you have a ministry, you are presenting your workmanship to God saying, this is what I did. And so you're presenting, in effect, people and saying, we want to present people perfect in Christ. And we're going to pray and we're going to cry and teach and admonish. And we're going to do all of these things toward this end that you might be perfect in Christ. And we're not going to stop until it happens. But only Christ will finish it. You know that? He's the only one that can. He's the only one that can glorify us. And so that's the completion of our ministry. But we labor toward it. And along the way, as we aim for perfection, we're going to hit maturity. Spiritually mature men and women. And they will be like rocks, like pillars on which God builds an ongoing work. And so that's our goal. There's a focus, a clear goal. Finally, verse 29. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works in me. I was thinking... I was thinking about, you know, the martyrs, the blood of martyrs, the seed for the church, thinking about suffering, reading martyr stories and all that, and it seems somewhat removed from my life. Now, I think it's wonderful that God has brought to us and continues to bring to us people who have a missionary call. And they're going to follow and obey that call, and you may, I may be talking to someone, a young man or young woman, or maybe older, not age, but calling on your life, And you may end up being slaughtered for Christ. You may die 
as a martyr for Jesus. It's possible. It doesn't happen a lot, but it is possible. And it's good to know the theology of that kind of suffering and know how Paul rejoices in it and how God would, will honor it and how it is a glorious thing to not love your life so much as to shrink from death. But I think most of us American Christians are called to a different kind of suffering of two types. Suffering for personal holiness and suffering to labor in gospel ministry despite all the inducements to a self-serving, entertainment-soaked, selfish, lazy way of life. That we would, instead of that, labor for Christ and for his kingdom. Labor, like Paul. Look what he says. To this end I labor, kopiao, means to work to the point of exhaustion. Struggling is agonizomai, like an agony. Wrestling, like against an opponent, with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I think the reason we hold back from pouring ourselves out in labor is we're afraid we're afraid that there will not be sustainable, renewable energy source to keep us going. We don't want to be exhausted. And that's so sad because people who lose that fear and just go for it find the power of Christ in them like Paul did in him. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order that we might present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Just look at the sun today. Just look at it. Now, there's a renewable, sustainable energy source for you. We're looking for one, you know. I don't know how long petroleum is going to last, but uh, there's the sun. I'm not talking here about solar energy, okay? I'm just talking about the sun as an example of what God can do. Do you realize that if you took the gross national product of the United States of America, we heard this in a tape uh, or a DVD, speaking about the greatness of God in the cosmos. If you took the gross national product of the United States of America and invested it completely in energy production, for the next 100,000 years, it would be less than the energy put out by the sun in one second. Are you telling me God can't keep you going for the next 40, 50 years of faithful service to Christ? He can. Test Him. Try it. Look at what the Apostle Paul did. Hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. I think his schedule was like this. When he was working as a tent maker, I think during the day he preached to unbelievers. In the evening he ministered to Christians, teaching them and preparing them and all that. In the late night he sewed tents to support he and his fellow workers. That was his life. And so he speaks frequently about his work. He says in Acts 20, you, know, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. 1 Corinthians 4.12, we work hard with our own hands. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, 2, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. But here we are. We coddle ourselves, we comfort ourselves, we entertain ourselves, we don't work hard for Christ. And I think, you know, for, for me, I, I, the, the quickest thing to do is to go find some solution ourselves and bring it to Christ. That's not it. That's not it. Go to Christ and say, this is who I am. This is the way I'm really living. I actually don't have a ministry, or if I do, I'm really not laboring at it to the point of exhaustion. I'm really not focused on ministry. I don't have a ministry. I'm not really laboring at it the way Paul did. Forgive me, Lord. And then work within me the kind of energy it will take to get my priorities straight and to start living the kind of life you want me to live. I've already done that. I'm going to keep doing it. Paul challenges me. 
And I feel like, oh, how sweet it will be when five years from now people say, you know, I don't know what it was, maybe around the time of Colossians, some other time, God worked in me and he gave me a ministry. And over the last five years, I've, I've really felt poured out in that ministry and look at the fruit. And I don't know what it's going to be. Evangelistic fruit, wonderful. Let's see it happen. But it could be all kinds of spiritual gift ministries. This is the labor that Paul, that God is calling us to. By way of application, can you begin just by praying that this kind of eightfold ministry would happen here at this church? Pray for me, that I would be this kind of a pastor. Pray for Andy Wynn, for Eric. Pray also for our spiritual leaders who are not vocational ministers but are called to ministry, that they would minister like this. Keep going. Pray for yourself that you would minister like this. Pray that God would give you a ministry, an identifiable, clear ministry, and that you would labor in it like this. Pray that God would raise up fruit in your life. Concerning suffering, you may be going through some great suffering right now. Just know that there's a purpose in it. Know that, that there's no suffering that happens. It's not coming to you through, except through the hands of God. And just know that God is, in effect, putting you on display. Suffer with great joy. And I want to finish with joy. Canary in the coal mine, what an image. All right, how's your joy? How's your joy? Is it where it needs to be? And if it's not, go to the Lord this afternoon in prayer and say, Lord, what was the joy thief in my life? Maybe it's that you don't have a ministry and you're not serving Christ, really. And, and you're just, you've tasted the world and it's not satisfying to you and you're not happy. It's because you've built your house on sand. Well, or just a wing of it anyway. <laughs> let, let God crush that wing and get back to building on Christ and on his words. Maybe it's sin in your life. Confess it to him. Confess it. Let him work in you. He is a gracious God. This is the kind of ministry, not only that God wants to work through you, but he wants to work to you. Let him do it. Close with me in prayer, if you would. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.